My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Kim Holmes Younger and Pam Rocker. In the last 20 years, dominant attitudes in Canada towards lesbian, gay, bi, and queer people have shifted significantly, and attitudes towards trans people have also shifted, though not as much. Grassroots struggles by queer and trans people and allies have driven these shifts, and various kinds of expanded institutional and social space for queer and trans folk to live and thrive have been won as well, though access to this enhanced thriving has been quite unevenly distributed. Yet this shift has not been accompanied for a significant proportion of even the more steadfastly supportive cisgender and straight people with a substantive engagement with the diverse realities of queer and trans lives and with the ways that sexuality, gender, and power work in all of our lives, institutions, and communities. And this means that for all the goodwill and support of a certain sort that's out there, it can be a tricky thing to communicate to mainstream audiences that Yes, gay marriage is legal, and yes, certain kinds of gay visibility have increased dramatically, but there are still a lot of other kinds of barriers and struggles and challenges that permeate LGBTQ lives. And those, by the way, cannot just be reduced to the lingering presence of a handful of retrograde individual bigots. The need for major social and institutional change persists. This plays out in lots of ways, in lots of contexts. But the one that is the focus of today's show is religion. As today's guests discuss, many LGBTQ people have experienced significant wounding through and by organized religion, through the institutions themselves, and through distributed attitudes and practices that are reproduced via the teachings of the institutions. Yet while many navigate this trauma by leaving their faith behind, many others do not and continue to desire a spiritual journey in which they can be full participants. Recently in Calgary, an initiative that began in a handful of united churches brought together both clergy and laypeople from a variety of denominations and faiths. This conference, called the Human Rights Conference, spelled R-I-T-E-S, was to foster discussion of the histories of LGBTQ people being excluded from and marginalized within organized religions, and also discussion of the important work happening in many contexts to move towards a different, more inclusive reality. It was meant as a space of learning and a space of healing. Kim Holmes Younger has been working at Wild Rose United Church in Calgary in community engagement and youth ministry roles. Pam Rocker is a playwright and a spoken word poet and works for Hillhurst United Church in Calgary, specifically on engaging and celebrating LGBTQ communities. They were both involved in the organization of the conference, and they speak with me about queerness, faith, and the recent Human Rights Conference. We spoke by Skype to phone from Calgary. My name is Kim, and I have been working for Wild Rose United Church in Calgary for four years. My role before was community engagement coordinator, so I did outreach projects for the church, and now I'm working as a youth minister and communications. 
but I also volunteered to do the conference. And I was hired by the conference to be the conference administrator. At the church that I was working at, we saw a lot of people coming in who were hurt by religion. And so I became an activist for the LGBTQ community and their faith rights just from that position because I really felt that people were hurt and they needed a place to be safe and to grow. And that's where I wanted to provide for them. For me, the conference was the ability to get all faiths together and talk about why the LGBTQ population has been left out of religion or been shunned from religion and see how we can heal people. And I'm Pam Rocker. As an individual, I'm a playwright and a spoken word poet and performer. And in my professional life, I work at Hillhorst United Church as our affirming and creative coordinator. So basically, I program events that help to reconcile and celebrate the LGBTQ community alongside the faith. I also love to be involved in the community at large and do lots of different partnerships with our events. The Human Rights Conference was a national conference focused on having a conversation about the ways in which the LGBTQ community have been excluded from religion and then also the ways that they have been included and to focus on positive voices that are happening in different faiths because we often hear all of the negative about how people are excluded, but there also are really progressive, great communities of faith who are trying to learn and grow in these areas. So kind of those two focuses. And I would say for me, it started in a personal way because I'm gay and I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. And in that context, it definitely was not an option for me to even think about. It was very repressive in that way. And so I didn't even really begin to explore what that might mean until after I had already gotten married to a guy and gotten divorced from a guy and really felt like I had to begin living my life in integrity, knowing that it would also cost me my life at the time in terms of I worked at a big evangelical church. That's where my community and my friends were. My family were really involved in religion ever since I was young. So I saw and experienced firsthand what that separation does to a person. For me, I always say that without my faith, my life won't be fulfilling, but without being open about all aspects of who I am, including my sexual orientation, my life will be devoid of integrity, and I want to have both of those things. So that kind of personal history informs and still teaches me in terms of what people actually have to go through who want and deserve to have a faith and spiritual journey if they would like and are put in positions where they're told that they have to choose. So that helps me in my work at the church doing the affirming pieces that I've talked about. And that also makes me feel really passionate about emphasizing the other faith and belief systems that are going to be progressive as well. Because I happen to really resonate with the United Church of Canada's theology for the most part. But I don't think that everybody is going to, nor should they. So my desire is that any LGBTQ person is able to practice the faith that resonates with them and their values. And unfortunately, that list is really small. Tell me a bit more about the context of the need for this kind of conference. What I have found is a lot of people who have come to me have been a part of an evangelical church, for instance, teaching Sunday school or, you know, in the choir or something. And when they've 
come out, they've been asked to step down on that position and been told they're welcome to sit in the pew and sing and worship with those people, but they're not allowed to teach Sunday school or be a part of the choir or run the sound system or anything like that. We've seen that over and over again. I hear similar stories as Kim has experienced. Even within the stories that have a similarity, there are uniquenesses. So, for example, even before I was out, I would encounter people who I knew were not living in their actual gender or sexual identity and were very, very sad people. And often, sometimes, the people who perpetuated the most harm on people who were out and who were open, because it is a very difficult and painful place to be in, to not be able to totally express yourself or experience relationships that are actually going to resonate with you. So I saw that side of it. And then after coming out and experiencing being in the LGBT community as an openly gay person, meeting so many people who had very similar experiences to me where their faith was really important to them, but any time that they expressed that they might be gay or they were struggling with their gender identity or something like that, they were very clearly and explicitly pushed back into the closet in some way, whether by their family or by religion or maybe by their work, but usually all rooted in a so-called religious reason that the Bible or God disapproved of this and that it was an abomination. And so always at the root of it, religion was used as a weapon against people to keep them repressed and to keep them away from their true selves. And in my work at the church, there are people who come and talk to me all the time who do experience, even in 2015, where we feel like, okay, well, we've had gay marriage for 10 years. It's legal. What else do you want? But that legal policy protection doesn't change attitudes. So we may be protected in some ways, but it doesn't change attitudes and it doesn't change a church congregation or your minister or your mom from what they believe. So active exclusion is still happening. There's still reparative therapy that's happening, conversion therapy, where people join groups that are called support groups. They usually have kind of innocuous sounding names like living waters or something like that, where basically they're taught to get rid of their same-sex attraction, quote-unquote, and taught to basically act and live straight lives, and that this is something that can be cured. So there's a lot of people that I've met in my ministry over the past five or six years who have been a part of that, and it's been extremely psychologically and emotionally and spiritually damaging to them. But because they really have felt like there's no other choice and that they would lose everything in their life, if they were open about who they were, they were willing to take those really dramatic steps. But those groups are still definitely happening now. They're usually more undercover now than they would be just because of media scrutiny on them, but they're just as active as they have been in previous years. So that's the kind of stuff that you see day to day that I think is hard for maybe the average person to really wrap their head around why that would still exist. But it definitely is real, and it's something that you see in people who even now are living openly and maybe have a relationship and those sorts of things. The effects from those sorts of things are very long-lasting and deep because it talks to the core of our being. And if we're a person who wants and experiences a spiritual journey, and we are made to believe that the other core of our being, which is our sexuality, is directly at odds with that for our whole life, it's really difficult to 
feel a sense of confidence and worthiness holistically after that. So that's just one of the many reasons why talking about it and saying it still exists and what are we supposed to do about this is so imperative. Tell me where and how the idea for the conference originated. So I, at the time, was working as a community outreach worker, and I had a young guy who attended our church a couple times. He approached me about being his mentor for a university internship. The church agreed I could be his mentor for the year, but I said to him, you have to have a project. So I gave him some ideas. I said, you know, we could do a conference or we could do an outreach project. And I knew it needed to be with the LGBTQ community because Ryan was gay and he was suffering in his church, like Pam had described already. I'm a big multi-faith person. I really feel that we don't spend enough time getting to know each other. So the idea of having a multi-faith conference was huge for me, but bringing the LGBTQ population into that was also huge for me. And so I approached all the affirming churches in Calgary, and we didn't really know it was going to be a conference until we started getting funding in, and we secured space, and then it started becoming real. I would just add to that, around the same time in May of last year, I had been thinking for our community that we wanted to bring in Matthew Vine, who wrote the book, God and the Gay Christian. And I contacted his agent and gotten some prices and thought, wow, it would be really great to partner with some other churches on this. And because we're affirming churches and we've made a commitment to ongoing work in these areas, maybe this would be something that we could all work on together. It was during that time that I found out another church was thinking about bringing him in and then obviously met with Kim and the other leaders and it evolved into something where we thought, okay, it would be great to have the speaker, but it would also be great to integrate some local people and different faiths and to see what's happening in the bigger picture. And what's the significance of a church being affirming? Being affirming in the United Church of Canada means that the congregation has taken on a intense period of reflection and education to really see what their attitudes, beliefs, and knowledge are about what has happened to the LGBT community as a result of religion and also at what areas can we grow in and what can we do about it and what should we say about it or not say. This process usually takes two to three years. It's not something that's taken on lightly or where you just have one workshop and then throw up a rainbow flag. It's something that congregations really need to commit to. So they go through this process. It often involves workshops, sermons, film screenings, book studies. A huge part of it is storytelling, so asking people who have been affected by these issues to tell their stories. After the process is done, there's a vote that happens, and it has to be at least 70% majority because we want it to be a place where it actually is an inclusive community, not something where we are forcing the community to be inclusive because you can't do that. And then you also have to commit to ongoing work in not just areas around LGBTQ people, but then in other areas where people have been marginalized by religion. Tell me about the final shape that the conference itself took? We had several speakers and a panel, and we tried to represent as many faces as possible. So on the Friday night, we had Ivan Coyote come, and they're a transgendered storyteller. And then on the Saturday, we had different speakers. So we had John Fennell come. He's an Olympic athlete who came out after Sochi, and he talked about perseverance. 
We had Pace and Horn talking about the United Church and what it means to be affirming. And then we had speakers from the Lutheran Church and then the Evangelical Church. And we had a Muslim, Dr. Jernod, come in from Edmonton. And he talked about the LGBTQ movement in the Muslim Church. We had a multi-faith panel. And so the weekend was about learning and healing, about hearing stories. And then suddenly we concluded with a multi-faith worship service. So we had, again, representatives from different faiths. It ended up evolving into something where we incorporated clergy and non-clergy kind of equally to represent different facets of the community. And, for example, having Ivan Coyote come in, who has been touring and writing and performing for over 18 years, was really important to us because a lot of people in the LGBTQ community know about Ivan and would maybe come to something that they're doing, but not necessarily come to a faith conference. So we wanted to open it up to a broader audience and also include something that wasn't overtly religious per se, but that really added to the whole attitude and and purpose behind the conference. And then throughout the day, those experiences, as Kim talked about, with different people of different faiths, both clergy and lay people, talking about their experiences and those sorts of things, it kind of reminded me of what an affirming process would be like because it was very much about stories. It was very much about saying, this was my experience as a pastor. This is my experience as a mother of a gay teen. This is my experience as a gay person who wanted to be a part of ministry and couldn't be for some reason. And also having Matthew Vines on Saturday night was really important because to have Matthew talk about in a very articulate, passionate way, those six Bible verses that are used to condemn homosexuality and really break them down to understand what they actually mean and that they're not meant to be used for harm or exclusion was really powerful for a lot of people. Because often I think we are shy of trying to really delve into the Bible because it has been used as a weapon so many times against our community. But to have somebody articulate and say, if you come from a background where you really believe the Bible is the main authority on many things, here is why you can still believe that the Bible is the main authority and still accept LGBTQ people fully and completely. And also we eat meals together, right? That was a really important piece. The chance for people who came there to be able to talk about the experiences that they had and what they were learning. And somebody at one of the tables said, wow, the conferences I go to at mealtimes, people are so sick of the workshops that they talk about something else. But here, everybody is so excited about what they've been learning and to share their story with each other at the mealtimes. So for us, that was its own experience, too, just to create some space for conversation and for learning, because I think that's where the most powerful stuff happens anyway. It was really great to work together for a lot of us in the most extensive partnerships that we've had with different, say, systems, and to see the commonalities and not just talk about it, but actually practice that and give voice and a space to different people who are different from us, and, you know, maybe they don't even agree with most of what we think. To see that being acted out in a tangible way was really a huge growth point for me, and I think really inspiring for a lot of people who came. So recognizing that you can only speak from your own respective places, I'd be interested in hearing what you can say about the more multi-faith component of the conference and the work. 
In particular, thinking about the ways that these kinds of conversations often have to happen differently in faiths that themselves face a lot of prejudice and marginalization. For example, Islam, which faces a great deal of popular prejudice and various measures by the Canadian state that target Muslims. How does that conversation happen differently, as far as you understand it, in the context of different faiths, particularly faiths that are marginalized in this country? That's a great question, and I think that's a question that we asked ourselves in different ways in the past year. And I'm not sure if we have a really articulate answer. What I would say is that we did realize in our different circles that we did know progressive people in Islam who were doing great work already in these areas. It wasn't something that we had to bring up or we had to invent or that we were starting the conversation. It was really just inviting people who already in their own community are doing great things and that maybe only a few of us knew about. And so inviting them into this broader conversation where more people would have a chance to hear about what's happening. And I think in terms of religions that are marginalized, in terms of Islam, there's lots of negative things around that. And so it was important for us to recognize that and to also give space to people who would be sensitive and open to those sorts of dialogue and those questions. And I think, for example, in that multi-faith panel, hearing people's different experiences, Mormon, Mennonite, United Church, Islam, Catholic, really, even though at the end of the day, if we wrote down, here's the black and white of how I feel about things, it would probably look very different. But I think in that context, it's saying, okay, progressiveness looks different in every culture in every way. And can we celebrate and move forward in the ways that progressiveness is happening? So I think that's a really good question. And I think sometimes people are shy to do things that are interfaith because it can be really complex and because you want it to be an actual authentic partnership and not just do it to say, oh, yes, we've included this person, right? So I think the key for us was just to recognize that we didn't invent activism, that we aren't the only ones who are trying to, to make a difference and to invite those people who are already within those belief systems and trying to make a change to come and speak about their experience. What were you hoping that people would take away from the conference? Well, for me, the biggest thing I hoped was that there would be some healing happening at the conference, and I heard over and over again that there was a lot of healing that happened. I think for me, the hope would be on two different levels. So one would be on a personal level, that whoever came to the conference would feel less alone. And that can mean lots of different things to different people. And that you would go away with another piece of knowledge or something that you're going to take to your circles. What's your sense of how change can continue to happen within faiths and denominations and religious institutions on these issues? How can people who see this as important push these change processes forward in the kinds of faith contexts you're familiar with? I don't like the word push <laughs> because I think it's a gentle step-by-step -step process. It's a tippy-toe issue in some ways because we're not promoting splitting churches up for sure. We're promoting equality for all. It's being a slow process and not being overbearing. The biggest danger in our time right now is apathy. I hear all of the time from people, oh, this is still an issue. Well, I have a gay friend and they're fine at work. Or, yeah, my church is totally cool with gay people. 
So I think because there is this cultural attitude, for the most part, that the mainstream culture that LGBT people are equal, which is, of course, true, but I think it's easier for people to think that it's kind of an old issue and something that we don't actually need to talk about anymore. And are we just trying to ghettoize ourselves? And do we just want attention and those sorts of things? So that is what I see as the biggest danger because I can actually see in some areas where we're moving backwards because, for example, gay marriage, now that fight is over, but it doesn't actually change people's attitudes or hearts. So what I see as something really positive is things like this happening in not only the United Church, but in lots of different areas where we say, okay, thanks for allowing us to marry each other if we want, but also we want to be included holistically. And that's why we call this conference Human Rights, R-I-T-E-S, because we want to have full access to the rights and rituals that everyone else has access to as well. So I actually, and I think it's okay that we disagree on this, I don't mind the word push, because it really is for many people a life or death thing. We see so many suicides happen in the LGBTQ community, and a high percentage of those are people who grew up in a religious home. And shame is such a poison, and shame is what has been used against us from a religious perspective for so long, and that is what's so damaging. So not even just in emotional ways, but in actually real life-threatening ways. So yes, the conversation has to be intentional, and yes, sometimes the approach should be gentle, but also it should be very well understood that people's lives are at stake. And if not their physical lives, their quality of life and their ability to live in integrity and be integrated as the full human beings that they are. And it's really draining to talk about what I'm allowed to do or not. It really takes a lot out of me. So even though I have the privilege of talking about it in positive context, it's also really draining that the conversation has to happen. Because when you have to hear on TV, news, whatever, about the kind of person you are, what you're allowed to do or not, it actually really takes a toll on you. And the last place that I want to hear that is from my faith community that is so important to me. So it's easy for me to even want to disconnect because it's actually really hard to keep having the conversation. But then on the other hand, I have a spiritual community. I have a sanctuary that is actually a sanctuary. And the reason that I have that is because this congregation and people pushed and said, you know what, it's not okay to just say, yeah, I think we're welcoming. We have to be radically inclusive. And that's the reason why I have probably my life and a huge quality of life because I have that. And so many people do not have that. You have been listening to my interview with Kim Holmes Younger and Pam Rocker about a recent conference in Calgary, Alberta that brought together clergy and laypeople from a variety of faiths to discuss religion and LGBTQ communities. To learn more about the conference, go to humanrights.ca. That's H-U-M-A-N-R-I-T-E-S dot C-A. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 